Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 211th episode of the Nauticast, titled The Fury, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, John 8, in which Mance Raider finally arrives at the wall with chariots and mammoths and giants, oh my! Too bad John doesn't have Toto. I mean, Ghost. Whatever his dog is called. A dragon or three could be useful, too. Know anyone who has any? You know, I don't. I think we're fresh out of dragons. It's a classic classic supply chain problem. <laughs> I blame inflation. So our spoiler warning, as usual, prepare to be spoiled for all five A Song of Ice and Fire novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, any histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from one of our patrons, Lauren, who asks, Will there be any giants left at the end of the story? Thanks, Lauren. Bummer question. But uh, what do you think, Madhu? I think we're going to have uh, one giant, five giants, negative ten giants somehow. Oh, oh I, don't, I hope not negative ten. Are those like white giants? Like we uh, so I guess that, that's, yeah, zombie giants count as negative, technically. Um, so I guess we'll probably get into a negative count for a little bit, but I do think at the <laughs> mm-hmm. end we are, it is a zero-sum game. Um, I haven't really thought about this in this specific detail, but I've generally hewed to the idea that a lot of magic might die out from the world um, or something maybe akin to what we saw in the show where Drogon perhaps returns to Valyria. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that's magic retreating to the corners of the world or, you know, something like that. Um, But I definitely view kind of a less mystical Westeros existing after Endgame, whatever it is. I'm not like committed to that belief, but that's kind of what I've always thought. Um, And it seems to me that the giants would kind of fit into um, they're just kind of being the dying out of magical beings after the long night. Yeah, agreed. I think there might be a hint, a scrap, a fragment of magic left. It might go into dormancy, maybe just the direwolves, maybe not even that. But yeah, I think the giants will probably make their last stand like the Ents in Lord of the Rings and just kind of pass that with the old world. We see that kind of melancholy in the last of the giants song. So I think, I think yeah, odds odds are against it, but I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's cool scenes George has in mind for how they're going to go down. I'm sure something you know, uh, resembling what happened on the show uh with one one but on a you know multiplied by 10 multiplied by a thousand yeah and you know one of the things that perhaps makes them interesting is that you know we think about it in that kind of tolkien-esque way of like the elves magic dying out from the world but the giants might just be flat out killed whether it's by others or men or whatever they could just be exterminated or made extinct by quote-unquote natural means also bleak, but yeah, very true. It might not even just be a, a wistful Tolkien evolution into the West. No, they're just dead. <laughs> just one by one dead. Yeah, it's not a, the North is not going to be a, a safe place to be mm-hmm. for many people for a while. Giants among them. So thank you to Lauren for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F where our patrons get early access to our regular episodes, exclusive episodes every month, and more benefits. But... We're here today to talk about A Storm of Swords, John 8, so let's jump into the synopsis. He dreamt he was back in Winterfell, limping past the stone kings on their thrones. Their gray granite eyes turned to follow him as he passed, and their gray granite fingers tightened on the hilts of the rusted swords upon their laps. You are no Stark, he could hear them mutter in heavy granite voices. There is no place for you here. Go away. He walked deeper into the darkness. Father? He called, Bran? Rickon? No one answered. A chill wind was blowing on his neck. Uncle, he called. 
Uncle Benjamin? Father? Please, Father, help me. Up above, he heard drums. They are feasting in the great hall, but I am not welcome there. I am no Stark, and this is not my place. His crutch slipped and he fell to his knees. The crypts were growing darker. A light has gone out somewhere. Egret? he whispered. Forgive me. Please. But it was only a direwolf, gray and ghastly, spotted with blood, his golden eyes shining sadly through the dark. John wakes up to find that reality isn't much better than his nightmare. It's cold, it's dark, and he's all alone. He used to share this bed with Ghost, and Egret kept him warm on the road, but Egret is ash and dust now, and Ghost is still missing. But the wolf in his dream had been gray, not white. Gray like Bran's wolf. Had the Fens hunted him down and killed him after Queen's Crown? If so, Bran was lost to him for good and all. Swing and a miss, John. Bran is just going to keep on bothering you in your dreams. It's his favorite thing. John gets it wrong yet again when he hears a horn blow, thinking it's the Horn of Winter at first. Thankfully it's not, but it is a warning of wildlings on the march. Honestly, John is glad. Fighting is better than waiting to fight, and if he dies in battle, at least he'll get to rest. Bad news, John. Even when you do die, they're just going to wake you back up and make you keep fighting. John manages to dress and arm himself despite his injured leg. He joins his fellow watchmen, including a couple refugees from Molestown, as they wait for the winch elevator that is now their only way up the wall, since the stairs burned down, along with the fens. Is it Mance Raider? Satin asked anxiously. We can hope so. There were worse things than wildlings in the dark. John remembered the words the Wildling King had spoken on the Fist of the First Men, as they stood amidst that pink snow. When the dead walk, walls and stakes and swords mean nothing. You cannot fight the dead, John Snow. No man knows that half so well as me. Just thinking of it made the wind seem a little colder. You really know you're in trouble when you are hoping your enemies are still human. The cage comes down, the watchmen get in, and the cage goes back up. On top, John sees that the watch is well supplied for the fight. Bowen, Spoon, Counter, Marsh at least did that right, if literally nothing else. Thankfully, Marsh isn't in charge. That is, once again, Donal Noy. Did you hear that? Noy asked. There was the wind, and horses, and something else. A mammoth, John said. That was a mammoth. Not just a mammoth, as it turns out. When Donal orders barrels of pitch flung from the trebuchets, the battlefield lights up enough for John to see it's more like a hundred mammoths. Red Allen sounded his sentry's horn once more. Ow, ow. And now the wildlings answered, not with one horn, but with a dozen, and with drums and pipes as well. We are come, they seemed to say. We are come to break your wall, to take your lands and steal your daughters. Interesting interpretation, John. <laughs> I didn't know you spoke horn. Is that is that on Duolingo? The battle begins in earnest as the wildlings march on the gate down below. That's their only way through, as John thinks. The wall is just too unrealistically huge to burn or breach or batter down. The gate is the choke point, and it's a narrow tunnel guarded by iron grates and a thick oak door. But John is not sure any of that will be enough against giants and mammoths. Must be cold down there, said Noy. What say we warm them up, lads? Oh, yes, please, some more mold wine for me. Oh, oh, he means setting them on fire. Okay, my bad. Pip, Gren, and Owen the Oaf send jars of lamp oil and barrels of pitch down on the wildlings. Yet still the drums beat on, the trebuchets shuddered and thumped, and the sound of skin pipes came wafting through the night like the songs of strange fierce birds. Septon Celador began to sing as well, his voice tremulous and thick with wine. 
Gentle mother, fonts of mercy, save our sons from war, we pray. Stay the swords and stay the arrows, let them know. Donald Noy rounded on him. Any man here stays his sword, I'll chuck his pocket arse right off this wall. Starting with you, Septon. Wow, I guess that song only works its magic when Sansa's the one singing. <laughs> Donald calls for archers and spearmen to help him hold the tunnel through the wall. Then he leaves John in charge. What? No, he doesn't, says John. That must be a misprint, or George had a stroke or something. Well, turns out Donald meant what he said, and so John takes command of the archers. Afterward, it would seem to Jon Snow as if he'd dreamt that night. Side by side with the straw soldiers, with longbows or crossbows clutched in half-frozen hands, his archers launched a hundred flights of arrows against men they never saw. From time to time, a wildling arrow came flying back in answer. He sent men to the smaller catapults and filled the air with jagged rocks the size of a giant's fist. But the darkness swallowed them as a man might swallow a handful of nuts. Mammoths trumpeted in the gloom, strange voices called out in stranger tongues, and Septon Selador prayed so loudly and drunkenly for the dawn to come that John was tempted to chuck him over the edge himself. I kind of feel bad for the Septon, but also, yeah, I can only imagine how annoying he must be right now. Between him and Sir Dantos, I get the sense George has had to escort a lot of drunk friends home. The wind blows, the mammoths die, Hob the cook brings up some onion soup, and the battle rages on. One of the trebuchets breaks. The wildlings figure out where the other one is aiming and are, surprise surprise, avoiding that spot. Donald Noy never comes back, and John has to keep reminding himself that the wall is his responsibility in order to keep himself from passing out. When morning came, none of them quite realized it at first. The world was still dark, but the black had turned to gray, and shapes were beginning to emerge half-seen from the gloom. John lowered his bow to stare at the mass of heavy clouds that covered the eastern sky. He could see a glow behind them, but perhaps he was only dreaming. He notched another arrow. Then the rising sun broke through to send pale lances of light across the battleground. John found himself holding his breath as he looked out over the half-mile swath of cleared land that lay between the wall and the edge of the forest. In half a night, they had turned it into a wasteland of blackened grass, bubbling pitch, shattered stone, and corpses. The carcass of the burned mammoth was already drawing crows. There were giants dead on the ground as well, but behind them... Someone moaned to his left, and he heard Septon Selador say, Mother have mercy, oh... Oh, oh, mother have mercy. Yeah, you better hope she does, buddy, because by light of day, the Watchmen can see just how screwed they are. There are tens of thousands of wildlings waiting under the trees, wildlings of all types from all over. John realizes that everything they've gone through so far was just an appetizer, and now the main course is coming right for them. Giants riding mammoths take the lead, with more giants behind them pushing a gigantic ram. They're flanked by horsemen, archers, and chariots made of bone, just in case all this wasn't metal enough. There must be a hundred thousand, Satin wailed. How can we stop so many? The wall will stop them, John heard himself say. He turned and said it again, louder. The wall will stop them. The wall defends itself. Hollow words, but he needed to say them, almost as much as his brothers needed to hear them. Mance wants to unman us with his numbers. Does he think we're stupid? He was shouting now, his leg forgotten, and every man was listening. The chariots, the horsemen, all those fools on foot. What are they going to do to us up here? Any of you ever seen a mammoth climb a wall? He laughed, and Pip and Owen and half a dozen more laughed with him. They're nothing. They're less used than our straw brothers here. They can't reach us, they can't hurt us, and they don't frighten us, do they? No, Gren shouted. They're down here, and we're up here, John said. And so long as we hold the gate, they cannot pass. They cannot pass! 
Oh, Gandalf would be so proud. Or he'd sue for plagiarism. Either way, John's big damn hero speech works, as the Watchmen are, once again, ready to fight. John orders the archers to focus on the giants and their battering ram. Meanwhile, down below, the wildlings are revealing their lack of discipline. The chariots are racing ahead of the giants, and wildling archers keep firing up at the Watchmen even though their arrows are falling well short. The tension rises as the ram approaches, and John prepares his archers. Finally, he gives the order to fire, again and again and again. The giants and mammoths start to fall, and they soon abandon the ram itself. The bone chariots reach the wall, but there's nothing for them to actually do there. And when a mammoth finally does reach the gate, Pip and Grin take it down with a barrel of burning oil. Then suddenly the mammoths were fleeing, running from the smoke and flames and smashing into those behind them in their terror. Those went backward too, the giants and wildlings behind them scrambling to get out of their way. In half a heartbeat, the whole center was collapsing. The horsemen on the flank saw themselves being abandoned and decided to fall back as well, not one so much as blooded. Even the chariots rumbled off, having done nothing but look fearsome and make a lot of noise. When they break, they break hard, Jon Snow thought as he watched them reel away. The drums had all gone silent. How do you like that music, Mance? I'm willing to bet that Mance does not like that song. <laughs> Didn't make his Spotify wrapped, that much is for sure. The Watchmen celebrate their victory. Zay from Molestown gives Owen a big smooch, but when she turns to Jon, he refuses, thinking that he's done with kissing. Well, until Danny shows up, at least. Brings a whole new meaning to Kissed by Fire. As the battle fever fades, John's exhaustion and pain catches up with him all at once, and he limps to the cage, leaving Gren, of all people, in charge of the wall, much to Gren's dismay and Pip's as well. Oh, come on, hobbits, you gotta believe in yourselves. John wants desperately to eat, get warm, and then pass out, but he knows that he first has to check in on Donald Noy and the gate. Some of the builders had wanted to leave in place all the debris from the battle with the fence, arguing that it would block the wildlings' passage. But Donald didn't want to give up the defensive position of the tunnel itself, and now he has made full use of it. Maester Eamon shows up with the keys, and they walk through the tunnel. Light starts to appear ahead, which John knows is really bad news for the watch. Soon they see that the oak door was torn apart by a giant, who crawled through the tunnel and came up against Donal and his men at one of the iron gates. Are they all dead? Maester Eamon asked softly. Yes, Donal was the last. Noe's sword was sunken deep in the giant's throat, halfway to the hilt. The armorer had always seemed such a big man to John, but locked in the giant's massive arms, he looked almost like a child. The giant crushed his spine. I don't know who died first. He took the lantern and moved forward for a better look. Mag, I am the last of the giants. He could feel the sadness there, but he had no time for sadness. It was Mag the Mighty, King of the Giants. John takes a very quick look at the killing field north of the wall before retreating back inside the tunnel to consult with Maester Eamon. We need to repair the outer gate as best we can and then block up this section of the tunnel. Rubble, chunks of ice, anything. All the way to the second gate if we can. Sir Winton will need to take command. He's the last knight left, but he needs to move now. The giants will be back before we know it. We have to tell him. Tell him what you will, said Maester Eamon gently. He will smile, nod, and forget. Thirty years ago, Sir Winton Stout came within a dozen votes of being Lord Commander. He would have made a fine one. Ten years ago, he would still have been capable. No longer. You know that as well as Donald did, John. It was true. You give the order, then, John told the maester. You have been on the wall your whole life. The men will follow you. We have to close the gate. I am a maester chained and sworn. My order serves, John. We give counsel, not commands. Someone must you. You must lead. No. Yes, John. 
It need not be for long, only until such time as the garrison returns. Donal chose you and Corin Halfhand before him. Lord Commander Mormont made you his steward. You are a son of Winterfell, a nephew of Benjen Stark. It must be you, or no one. The wall is yours, Jon Snow. And that is A Storm of Swords, John 8. What did you think of this one, sir? George is bringing down the curtain on Act 1 of A Song of Ice and Fire, and in doing so, circles back to Ned's words in A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 1, about having to face down this king beyond the wall. But it is not Ned, rather Jon Snow, who stands atop the wall to meet Mance Raider. Jon has played the role of spy and soldier in A Storm of Swords, but now he rises to lead her. Here as de facto commander against the first wave of Mance's attack, and by book's end, officially as Lord Commander following his election. But John 8 is more action than politics, and more personal than political. It is a step away from the machine of the last several chapters and into the war machine. Perhaps the same machine, just by another name. This is one of those chapters where George has backed himself into a corner, and you get to watch him braid himself out of it. Here's the problem. We just had a battle scene at Castle Black, and it was very urgent and intimate because the wildlings were right there, fighting the Watchmen hand-to-hand, and because one of them was Egret, our POV's star-crossed lover. All of that kept us invested. Now we have another battle scene where none of that applies. The enemy is on the other side of the wall, there's no hand-to-hand fighting, and we never see individuals like Mance and Torment on the other side that might invest us. The scenario is detached, almost abstract, so instead George grounds us in John's POV and character development. In this chapter and the next John one, George is working on John's leadership arc. We saw John emerge as a leader back in book one when he saved Sam from the other boys, but really that part of his story took a back seat when he went beyond the wall, and George was playing around with other genres, wilderness survival, undercover espionage, tragic romance. Now we're back to good old-fashioned protagonist self-actualization, and I think it's so well executed that you really don't even miss the hand-to-hand fighting itself. At least I don't. I kind of miss it, but it's no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to that soon Yeah, we're going to have uh, Oberyn Martell in the mountain soon enough. I think that's like the ur exactly. hand-to-hand combat. <laughs> what strikes me most about John's opening dream is how much it inverts Jamie's dream on the weirwood stump in his sixth chapter. Whereas Jamie was in his place, what he believed to be Casterly Rock, John knows he's in the crypts of Winterfell, and he is hearing, this is not your place. And unlike Jamie's dream, where all his family and loved ones and friends and enemies show up to taunt him, no one calls back to John. He is alone, except maybe the specter of Bran's direwolf looking back at him. I mentioned earlier George is circling back to one of the original plot beats he laid out in A Game of Thrones, Mance Raider at the Wall, and here he does something similar as John can hear that opening Winterfell feast, another time where it was not his place. And when John wakes, he still does not feel in his place, despite being in his bed and in his quarters of old. He's missing Egret, he's missing his family, he's missing Ghost. It's hard to feel in your place when the things and people that make home home aren't actually there. Maybe this portends Stannis' offer of John Stark. John would get his home back, but would it even be his home without the family he loved, or the where would he knelt at, or with the last name that marked him so when he lived there? As the watch mobilizes, we take note of the mole men, and not just the mole men, but the mole women and the mole children too, <laughs> who have stayed on to man the wall. 
This will leave a mark on John when he rises to Lord Commander, as he will take any help he can get in the fight against the others, looking past gender and age or social stigma, such as with Satin and his previous career as a sex worker. This sort of forward thinking will also be applied to artillery, munitions, and supplies elsewhere in this chapter, as John also thinks about, for example, the value of swivels for the trebuchets. John does hope that it is Mance Raider who has arrived at the wall, in part just so he can rest, dead or alive, but also because Mance is much, much better than the alternative. But George doesn't allow us any real hope here. John immediately thinks back to Mance's words at the fist, about how no one can fight the dead. Mance knows that, John knows that, and yet the Wildlings and the Watch are about to waste time and blood killing each other instead of building a quote-unquote coalition of the living, as Emmett put it last time out. And it's not just wasted time and lives, but everyone who dies is potential white fodder for the others. It's a cruel irony that hangs over this entire affair. If the Blackwater was a battle where the reader was unsure who to root for, then the Battle of the Wall is the reader thinking... Can't we just hug it out and not do this? But, of course, we'd lose some pretty epic action in the process as well. Yeah, worth the trade-off, I think. <laughs> I love that even in his dreams, John's leg is still wounded. Mm-hmm. Kind of the opposite of how Jamie, at this point anyway, still has, it, still has his hand in his dreams. John just lacks imagination, I guess. <laughs> they say in Inception, you mustn't be afraid to dream bigger, darling. But that just shows how John and Jamie, while they have a lot in common as characters, ultimately want different things, in part just because they're in different uh, parts of their life. Jamie wants his hand back because that's how he defines himself, the sword hand that killed the Mad King. Like he thinks to himself, the goat had robbed him of his glory and his shame, both at once. Leaving what? Who am I now? And while Casterly Rock is home for Jamie, he doesn't want to rule there and it feels almost oppressive in his dream. Ironically, because he always could have had it for his own. It was taken for granted, so ultimately he rejects it. I don't want her and I don't want your rock, as he told Tywin in his last chapter. John does define himself by Winterfell precisely because he was always told it could never be his as a bastard. It was home and not home at the same time. So in John's dream, he still has his wound, because it's not the, the perfect knightly body he wants like Jamie does, it's the perfect place. And yet, John doesn't dream of his father or his uncle, his brothers or sisters. He doesn't dream of the places he loved at Winterfell, the fighting yard, the great hall, the heart tree. He dreams of the crypt, because that is the place that makes you a Stark. That's what Bran told Rickon in the last book. You can't take the phrase there, you can't show the big and little Walter Frey around. That's our place. Now, of course, all kinds of people live in Winterfell. The Cassells fight in the yard, the pools run things in the Great Hall, Theon first got laid in front of the heart tree. Poor Bran, poor Bran. <laughs> but only the Starks are down below the ground, keeping their watch in death like the 79 Sentinels at the Night Fort we talked about in the last Bran chapter. The person John wants to be, the identity he longs for, is only achievable in death. The North, as Ned told Catelyn, is cold and hard and has no mercy. Bran and Rickon aren't here in John's dream, or even Ned, who's, you know, actually dead, unlike Bran and Rickon. Only the dead start kings, not even the lords, the kings. That's going back centuries, millennia. These are the oldest of the ghosts. These are the ones who never bent the knee. These are the ones who carved a kingdom out of fire and blood. And I like how George does this, that the first Stark we meet is Ned, and he kind of defines what Stark means for us at first, right? He's the Lord of Winterfell. He's dad. And then we realize that Ned was unusually nice for a Stark. You know, maybe that was just because he spent so much of his formative years in the Vale with John Aaron and Robert. 
But he was uh, the quiet wolf, the gentle wolf. His ancestors were fucking brutal. They wouldn't have ended up in charge of the North otherwise. Ned welcomed John home, but these ancestors don't. Even in death, John will find no home here. And this dream also evokes the, the long night, like the undead kings could be the zombie whites, and the chill wind speaks for itself, as does the light going out somewhere, as John thinks. That's always in there with the, the long night imagery. Like in Renly's death, when the, the lights went out, he whispered cold, very similar. But this dream also evokes the Red Wedding. Like, John hears drums from above, and he's thinking that's like, oh, it's a nice, it's a welcoming feast or something. It's like that scene in the Great Hall when he felt rejected back in Book 1. But coming off the Red Wedding, when we hear drums coming from up above, I think we're that's what, that's what we're thinking about. So it's, it's great. Ironically, like, even that, John doesn't get to be a part of. <laughs> even the family's downfall, he's not there for. And yeah, if he's like the last one to find out about it, right? I mean, Arya was there, of course. Sansa finds out about it right away. Bran dreams about it. Even, yeah, Bran is as far away from the actual event as John, but even Bran finds out about it first. And it, John gives himself away kind of when he, he, he longs for Egret. He asks the last name. He asks, you know, Benjen, Father, Bran, Rickon. And then he ends with Egret. Egret, who would never be here. Even in the, you know, the best case scenario. Like Ned was the, the one who loved enough to have even his brother and sister down here, which was breaking the rules because you're only supposed to be in the crypt if you're in charge of Winterfell. But Ned loved Brandon and Lyanna enough to have them down here. And John's version of that is Egret, who wasn't even a Stark. He's not even from the North, wasn't raised here. But that's... That's the person he wants here with him at the end of the day. Another another cave like the one they had north of the wall. And then he's, he's left alone with the wolf he does correctly recognize as Brands as, as symbolizing him. Who knows if that's just his kind of guilty, fevered mind, or if Bran is, is actually uh, uh, tapping in, using his third eye. What is, establishes Bran as this this guardian of the crypt, of, of the meaning of Stark identity. He's this this prophet of, of dreadful knowledge, which you've already seen in John's chapters when Bran, uh, as a tree, opened his third eye back in book two. Atop the wall, George begins to describe the weather in terms of physical violence. He uses phrases like, the cold hit him in his teeth like a fist, and cold knife of wind, as if nature is a third army in this battle. Later on, when the bone sleds and mammoths charge, John calls it the fury of the wild, which as far as I know is not copyright infringement of Jack London. In a way, <laughs> the others can be considered this natural army, and also these phrases are evocatives of John's cold death in A Dance with Dragons. Speaking of mammoths, Mance's army has hundreds of them, so I figure it'd be fun to do a little refresh on some 6th grade science, you know, for shits and giggles. Shits and Giggles is also how I refer to the last Tyrion chapter in this book. <laughs> Mammoths walked this earth dating back to 5 million years ago, the, the Pliocene Age, and recent studies have shown that they may have lived all the way up to 2000 BC in remote parts of Alaska and the Arctic. While the average mammoth would be comparable in size to modern-day elephants in Asia and Africa, they did have the potential to grow to 15 feet high and 40,000 pounds. The woolly mammoth, the species most widely known to us, were the last of the major mammoth species to emerge and would be the last of the giants before the megafaunal extinction overlapping with the dawn of the Holocene Age about 12,000 years ago. From more recent research, significant vegetation changes around this time is believed to be the main cause of extinction, though warming climate and human hunting may have also played a part. The mammoth's closest relative alive today is the elephants of South and Southeast Asia. And no, despite what the historical epic cinema like 10,000 BC may have you believe, humans are not known to have ridden mammoths. Oh, you're though, no fun. <laughs> the word is still out on whether giants rode them. Good, good. I can believe. <laughs> I was thinking a lot about the wildling horns at this point, and how John thinks that the horns seem to announce the wildlings are here to take your land and steal your daughters. 
John at this point has to understand that this is not at all Mance's mission, and Mance's mission is even something John may agree with. So it's fascinating that his internal monologue is not immune to propaganda. And while I have to concede there is a strong anti-wilding prejudice among the Watch, one wonders if ringing out the war horns or charging into battle was the best first move for the king beyond the wall. If he truly wants to avoid mass death, perhaps some sort of parlay to begin would be worthwhile? It's a good question. We'll talk about it more to, towards the end of the episode, but there's a lot of a lot of different interests Mance is trying to balance here, which is, of course, same for true, uh, same as true for John on the other side of the battle. And I, I love the the bit, the little kind of joke when John gets up to the top of the wall as he realizes they have everything they need except soldiers. <laughs> like they're, they're, they got all this uh, the supplies, they have the trebuchets, they have arrows, they even have food. Everything except uh, everything they need except the people to use them. And uh, <laughs> John has to has to only hope that it wasn't the scarecrows who sounded the alarm because at this point they're outnumbered by the fake soldiers uh, up here on the wall. And yeah, it's the the sensory focus I think that really uh, makes this work. Uh, I was saying earlier that uh, without a kind of hand-to-hand battle, John, George has to focus on John's character arc, but he also manages to convey the the battlefield, even at a distance, really vividly so you, you can see it all. Uh, George is almost kind of calling out the limitations of this as a battle scene when uh, John describes it as a battle of blind men. There's this inherent limitation because uh, during the night they can't see anything, but you, you still get kind of bits and pieces. The, the, the trebuchets go off and light up the battlefield so you can get a sense of how many mammoths and uh, the, the men moving closer. And then they have the whole thing uh, boiled down to the gate. That's the most important. That's the choke point where they cannot pass. And you get some good character work even beyond John's own uh, developing leadership arc. You get that back and forth between uh, the Septon uh, praying not only for the dawn, but but for peace using the, the song Sansa sung at the Blackwater. We were supposed to be on her side in that moment, <laughs> and she saves Sandor's soul. And here it just hilariously does not work at all. Donald always immediately like, I will drop kick you over the wall if you keep that shit up. And you totally get why, because as we see later in the chapter, morale is on the verge of breaking here, and Donald needs... Donald needs to keep his men together and have them realize that at this moment they're not actually in danger <laughs> and they need to kind of keep that at the forefront of their mind and uh, the Septon will kind of bring that bring that mood down. Uh, they both have a point. You know, I think you can argue for, for peace on the whole and also war in the moment. That's the situation a lot of these, these Night's Watchmen are in and that's all setting uh, those concerns up for John to try and, and balance later. And yeah, he has his experiences with the Wildlings but he, in this moment, he still takes on the southern POV, the POV he was raised with at Winterfell, and also the POV of the, of the people around him who didn't go undercover with the wildlings, who have not met Mance or Tormund, didn't see Egret as anything more than another uh, body on the last battlefield. And so you can see John, almost by virtue of becoming their leader, he has to he has to think like them to a certain extent. And again, that's something he's going to have to balance with his awareness of the wildlings' humanity. This chapter started with John's dream, one which highlights his lack of belonging, his struggle of identity. I think this is deliberately done because when John is given the wall by Donald Noy, a million objections run through his head. He is unsure if he is the right person, despite the fact that he slips into leadership like a glove shortly thereafter. This comes up again at chapter's end when Eamon tells him he has the wall and can be seen as slowly setting in motion the path of Lord Commander Snow. And as soon as John realizes he's being put in charge, uh, he starts panicking, <laughs> of course. And he starts immediately lying to himself. Like, he has this little inner monologue about all the reasons Donald shouldn't put him in charge. And none of it's true. There, there are not, in fact, older and better men up here. He is not, in fact, as green as grass. John has battle experience. And it really doesn't matter if he's wounded because they're not fighting hand-to-hand anyway. Remember how arrogant John was when he first came to Castle Black? If he'd been put in charge like this right away, he wouldn't have learned anything. The experiences he has gone through have made him more worthy of leadership. 
Ironically, those experiences have also convinced John that he is not worthy of leadership and doesn't want to be in charge anyway. This is something George comes back to again and again. There is a disconnect between the desire for power and the practice of leadership, which is kind of unfortunate for society, and the Baratheon bros all show that disconnect in their own way. The problem is that taking charge demands confidence, even, I think, a certain amount of arrogance, whereas wisdom, which is ideally important for governance, uh, requires humility. You know nothing, Jon Snow. There's a reason that's his catchphrase, because it establishes that he has to, to start on the road to wisdom from the position of knowing nothing. And Donald Noy really shows that in his, his last words in the series, that he's, he's no lord, I'm a blacksmith. Jon says, my lord, in his, his desperate panic to have <laughs> Donald not say what he just said, and Donald says, that's not... That's not who I am. You're trying to fit yourself within that power structure that just isn't here. I'm a blacksmith. I just happen to take charge, so you can too. He's a vessel for class critique, like Davos, only because Donald Noy is not a POV, he just has to say it out loud. (laughs) Whereas Davos (laughs) can kind of think that stuff through. And you see that Donald Noy believes not only that John is no turncloak, but he believes that that John has learned his lesson, that he is more than the arrogant uh, boy he was when he first came to the Night's Watch, that he has internalized what Donald told him back in book one. So on one hand, John is clearly the best choice of the people up here. On the other, the one objection that John thinks about that is legit is he has been accused of desertion. And Donald chooses to ignore that, which is a choice. It's a political choice. And it's one that John leans on when he has to make his way past Jano Slint and Alistair Thorne. I think that John really is not a credible candidate for Lord Commander without being put in charge at some point during this battle. And Donald knows that, because Donald Noy, let's be honest, 100% knows he's going to his death here. Yet another father figure banished to the crypt, leaving John alone with his duty. The battle is a big long blur, and one thing that stands out is just how cinematic George's writing is here. As the sun breaks the horizon and the previous night's carnage comes to light, George's imagery can be interpreted as a long pan over the battlefield with the author's camera, akin to the famous tracking shot of No Man's Land from Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory. And Mance's remaining forces, still hundreds of thousands strong just waiting in the wings, feels like something out of Lord of the Rings. Be it the armies of Mordor arriving at Minas Tirith, or perhaps with the sunrise, the riders of Rohan at the Pelennor Fields. George obviously worked in television. He kind of has that cinematic imagination. And you can see that here when he's clearly thinking through what this would look like on screen and how you would... You would have this sense of scope contrasted with a lack of an actual enemy to see. And you see John's uh, just slow slip into numbness step by step. Just one more, just one more, just one more. And then that hammer blow of seeing the whole host at once. And that's it, That's purely psychological, right? Because logically, that was the same number of wildlings you were fighting all along through the night. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. could just keep fighting them. <laughs> but seeing them, realizing all at once is, is so much harder than fighting the same number as they gradually come at you. And the, in a way, ignorance was bliss. The darkness was helping them. Another of John's internal monologue I found fascinating is, this is not your land. There is no place for you here, which he directs at Mansa's army. It's a direct reflection of his dream earlier, where it was he who had no place, that Winterfell was not his. But it also reminds me about the border violence that is the wall and the feudal land ownership structure at play. By what right does the wolf claim this land and not the wildlings? And George really establishes the complexity of what's happening here via John's POV specifically. He is more sympathetic to the wildlings than most of the watchmen. He rode with them. He shared his bed or you know, at least his, his uh, sleeping bed with, uh, with Egret. He shared his uh, sleeping bag with Egret. He uh, came close to Manson Tormund, came to understand them as people and some of the other wildlings that he was riding with. 
he knows them as humans and doesn't want them to die and understands that at the end of the day that they're, they make better allies than the others. But John is also uh, more loyal to the North than I think most of the Watchmen are to the homes they came from. I think some of the Watchmen miss the homes they came from. Some feel rejected or resentful. We've seen a full range of emotions. Elsie Mormont just tries not to think about it. But John, again, like I was saying about Winterfell, he's more loyal to the North because he had no place there. He felt the need to to prove his loyalty, like Adam Valerian in the backstory. John has to go overboard to prove he belongs there, and now he's kind of getting back into that rhythm. And from that perspective, the Wildlings are the enemy. And the Wildlings are, are the underdogs on the whole when you zoom out to look at the, the political situation of Westeros. You have these people who are just people who have a lot of cultural things actually in common with the people on the other side of the wall who are being penned up there. Who knows why? Even if it was the sins of their ancestors, that was thousands of years ago. And now they're just prey for the others. And so they, they are clearly the underdogs uh, in terms relative to the power structures of Westeros. But the power structures of Westeros aren't here. The kings and lords, at least at this point, aren't here. The Watch are the underdogs in the moment in this fight uh, relative to Mance's forces. We get a reminder of the big picture when Stannis shows up. That really reorients us and makes us go, oh, right. <laughs> Even though Stannis <laughs> has a pathetically tiny army, he can just show up and casually smance, uh, smash Mance because of how big the, the technological and just power differential is between them. Yeah, in fact, the point is that Stan, Stannis has the weakest army of the bunch, and he can still just roll through what the wildlings are at this point. Yep, yep. John does acquit himself fantastically well in the commanding role, though, in terms of keeping morale high, having sound tactics, and enforcing discipline. And, this, you know, those are the things that will cause the wildlings to break at the end of this encounter, not having a leader like John or having that martial discipline. Right, even though they've all come together behind Mance, Mance can only enforce so much, and we see that play out. And John gives, yeah, John gives his big damn hero speech, and that kind of speech is so common in stories because it is it is really easy narrative shorthand for leadership and even character growth in general. If you don't want to show the the slow accumulation, the slow grind of what it takes to be in charge, a speech like this is it compresses it. The problem is that kind of thing is so common that it just feels generic. It has to be really big and heroic to transcend. Like I think of Theoden's speech in Return of the King, the movie mm-hmm. Return of the King, and how. Uh, elaborate and operatic that has to be just to get your attention so it doesn't feel like something you've heard a thousand times before. And what I like about John's speech here is that it's it's not about uh, unlocking the hero within or realizing they were always good enough or, or whatever. It's, it's He tells them to look with their eyes, basically, as Cyril Pharrell told Arya. Just stop panicking about the odds and look at the battlefield. It doesn't matter right now, anyway, how many wildlings there are because the Watchmen are two football fields up. <laughs> John gives them courage by telling them, basically, the only thing they have to fear is fear itself. Mance is a performer, a storyteller, and he wants to make his victory seem inevitable so that it will be. He has power if you believe he does. So John's leadership isn't generic. It's rooted in a specific foundation, his understanding of the fight, and his ability to communicate that understanding. Not only is he able to get his brothers to focus on the fight instead of panicking and collapsing like Bowen Marsh would do, but John gets them to focus on the part of the fight that matters. The ram. John gets that all the rest is for show. Like, the chariots can't do shit. The horsemen can't do shit. What matters is the ram. And George takes the time to show us how every other part of the wildling vanguard winds up not mattering one bit. John was right. John gives Gren the wall and goes to check on Donal Noy and the gate after the big battle. Rip to a real one, the one-eyed armor... One-eyed. The one-armed armorer is a fan favorite and has been a rock of John's storyline since A Game of Thrones and here at the last few chapters up at the wall in A Storm of Swords. Locked in death with Mag the Mighty, they are the last two to fall. 
While there are other giants around, the weight of Mag's death can also be felt. We are moving into a new epoch in Westeros, one where giants will no longer play a part, or so I think according to today's question. All this gives the battle a Final Fantasy, Lord of the Rings feel where we truly are approaching the doom of our time. That's why John thinks about the Last of the Giants song here. Earlier in the book, when he first heard that song, he didn't understand why Egret was crying. He didn't understand why it was a sad song. There are hundreds of giants here, John said, not realizing that there used to be thousands or even millions, that they roamed all of Westeros instead of being penned up beyond the wall. Egret cries for that memory. And now, Mag the Mighty has fallen. How will he be remembered? Will he be remembered at all? Tormund says he will. A one-armed smith slew Mag the Mighty? Har! Mance will make a song of that, see if he don't. But right after that, Mance's people are scattered by Stannis. The Bard King himself goes undercover to Winterfell, where he can't give himself away with a song like that. He has to sing the songs of the South, like the Fair Maids of Summer. Nothing about Donal Noy and Mag the Mighty. For all we know, the toast John and Tormund drink to Donal and Mag is the closest thing to a legacy the dead warriors will get. They're bound together in death. They came from different lands, they're literally different species, but their paths led them here, to each other. And neither was a bad person. It's easy to imagine a version of Donal Noy born north of the Wall who wound up fighting for Mance. And if it's difficult to imagine Mac the Mighty growing up <laughs> south of the Wall, that's not his fault. Donal was trying to defend his brothers. Mag was trying to liberate his people. Their dead bodies are locked together to show us that... They weren't so different after all. John thinks that Donal always loomed so large to him, a giant in his own right. But in death, John thinks he looks so small, like a child, just as Waymart Royce did at the beginning of the story. Death brings us back to birth, cutting through the narratives of identity, how we look in the eyes of others, and leaving us vulnerable and frail, as all of John's fathers have been at the end. I don't know who died first, John says, so you don't know who won. Donal has his sword buried in Mag's throat, but is locked in the giant's arms almost like an embrace. Donal was the last of the giants in his own way, the dying breed of watchmen who honor both the letter and the spirit of their vows. Without him, Castle Black feels more endangered than ever before. I guess now would be a fine time to mention the show's adaptation of the scene and the episode as a whole, uh, Season 4, Episode 9, Watchers on the Wall. When it came out in 2014, I really enjoyed the episode, but considered it a mark below, say, the Blackwater, as well as other highlights of season four, like the Two Swords and the Purple Wedding. But it's definitely an episode that has grown on me since, both in terms of the action and set pieces, but also the use of characters, which granted, is almost entirely different cast than what we see here. Sam, Gilly, Alistair Thorne, Janos Lint, and Dolores Ed are all present for the show's version, Pip and Gren get larger roles, and Egret and Tormund give us a point of view from the wilding side of things. I've grown to love the giant scythe just as a cool, if impractical, visual flourish, and there's a wonderful extended rotating shot of the courtyard as Jon joins the battle in Castle Black itself, uh, spinning 360 degrees around and showcasing pretty much every named character in the episode. It is a bit of a contrived sequence. There's a part where Tormund has to step onto a balcony and pound his chest just to fill time and screen. <laughs> but it's those kind of things that make me want a visual adaptation of my favorite stories. But most of all, I think we remember Gren playing the Donal Noy role of holding the gate when Mag the Mighty makes his giant charge. It's truly one of my favorite scenes in the show, lit entirely by torchlight, with Gren and his men almost exclusively shot and framed by iron bars to highlight the narrow confines of the tunnel, but also how they themselves are trapped. 
no chance, and no choice. As Gren's men waver, he recites the Night's Watch vows at them, a callback to how Gren and company brought John back at the end of season one. Game of Thrones loved its callbacks, and I think this was one of the more effective ones. The other rangers add their voices to Gren and roar out the last lines as Mag crashes into the gate before the camera cuts away. A great example of how the show being freed from the POV structure means they can directly show you things that are only implied when you're, you're stuck with one character at a time in the books. And also a great example of how to uh, make use of the cast you have. Donald Noah, I think, was never really in the works for the show. And while Gren, I love having him around still in the books, as far as we know, is probably never going to do anything major. He's <laughs> just going to be there to be Gren. So you can afford to kill him off here and give him a great scene like this, give the actor a great scene like this. And they really did. And this, in the books, is where John gets put in charge. By Maester Aemon as much as Donald Noy. And it's easy to take Aemon's words at face value that they have to just put John in charge. And he is right about, about Winton Stout being too senile to lead. From what we see of him, yeah, that's true. John is just <laughs> avoiding reality again when he wants to put him in charge. But when Aemon says that he, Aemon, can't take charge, not just won't, but can't, he is lying through his remaining teeth. It is just not true that Maesters can never give orders. We saw Maester Lewin run Winterfell for a few weeks while Sir Roderick was uh, riding out to find Ramsay. Found more, more than he bargained for there. <laughs> and Maester Pycelle briefly takes over the Red Keep after Cersei gets arrested by the Sparrows. Maesters have institutional authority. They're connected. They're seen as wise. They're not supposed to lead a coup, but you know, absent lords and knights and everyone else, they can absolutely give orders and expect them to be followed. And when Jon says specifically that the Night's Watchmen would follow Aemon's orders, I think he's right. Like, look what happens when John gets uh, removed from command, when he gets arrested by Janos Slint and Alistair Thorne at the end of his next chapter. Aemon is the one who speaks up for John, and Aemon is the one who threatens to get those assholes in trouble. So Aemon is not just doing what the rules say here. Like Donal, he is making a choice, a political choice. He is setting up John to become Lord Commander. It's the exact same thing he did like 70 years ago, when his father King Mikar died and the Lords called a council to decide the next king. They offered the crown to Aemon, and he refused, passing it on to his younger brother Aegon V, a.k.a. Aegon the Unlikely, a.k.a. Egg. Again, that's Aemon's humility, that he's not, he doesn't seek power, he's not self-aggrandizing, but you could also say this is Aemon's cowardice, and that he is passing the burden of command onto someone else so he doesn't have to deal with it. He says to both John and Egg, kill the boy and let the man be born. And ultimately, Aemon, I think, is sparing himself that moment. He's passing it on, he passed it on to Egg, and now he's passing it on to John. So, uh, moving into uh, foreshadowing and groundwork, we get John and his, his confusion, his uh, fever dream, waking up from sleep. He thinks the horn blast might be the horn of winter to bring the wall crumbling down. And this is George has to sprinkle this in every so often to remind us about the horn of winter, because it's, it's an easy old school fantasy concept, but we haven't actually seen the thing. It doesn't come up that much. And he wants it to have an impact when we see what Matt says is the Horn of Winter uh, in his tent. In the same way that he had, George has to keep John, has to have John keep bringing up Ghost every so often. So it hits home when eventually we see the good dog again. Yeah, yeah. I've seen this elsewhere before. I think it's when Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> One last time. Yeah, exactly. Matt shows up with his, uh, his yellow dust <laughs> to take down the wall. And then uh, one more, even uh, even more obvious bit of foreshadowing here is when John thinks he really could, he could hold the wall if only he had a dragon or three. Or three, just in case you're missing the point there. Not two, not four, but three. Who has three dragons that we know about? 
this is very important. This is why this comes after the Davos chapter where there's talking about three equals three. It's all to set up this joke right here. Exactly. It all it all it all comes together. And yeah, really I mean, adds up. And Danny, of course, yeah, hinting that Danny will change the game when she comes north with her dragons, which Stannis, as he is kind of a foreshadowing for Danny, or just kind of a miniature version of Danny, has his own version of shaking up the game when he comes north. No dragons, though, of course. Moving into theory and discussion, you brought this up earlier. If you were if you were in charge of the the Night's Watch at this point, uh, how would how would you handle Mance? What, what what would be your would your call? Would you try to strike a deal? Do you think he's open to that, or what would you do if he just said no? See, this this is the harder side of the equation for me. Because <laughs> right, flip it, go for Mance then. Go if if you're a Mance, that's cooler anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think just to finish that thought, I think. John really might be the only person who has the right information on the Night's Watch side to make an informed decision. That's true. Um, possibly Eamon, just because Eamon trusts John. Um, but really, no one else has really seen what he has um, and is not aware of what's really going on. And that's why uh, John, you know, at least, you know, for pra- practicality's sake, is able to slip into those like Night's Watch prejudices, is because he knows the men pretty much down the line believe them um because they still have that framing for their duty and their purpose here at the wall mance is the one i really unsure about um because he you know is supposedly committed to life and not having his people die but i just feel like i don't know there's some better way especially if he has any kind of notion that john snow might be at the wall at this point um that at least presents someone who will at least maybe hear him out in a tent if nothing else it's it's just hard to grasp because this is a lot of people who die, and Mance knows what happens to the people who die. Looking back at our own history in this world, it's like it does feel like a lot of times like kings and lords would go to battle just so they can get to the point where they can negotiate and make the peace, and that yeah. is kind of what happens. You know, Stannis kind of shows up and does his little thing, but after you know the next you know encounter or so, um, John is sent out, granted as kind of a political prisoner himself, to parlay with Mance, and often that's. What a battle like this will do. You come together, you realize there's a stalemate, and then you begin negotiations or something like that. But I I just feel like there could have been something else here, but it appears Mance's plan was Marshall um, the whole way through, you know, going back to the the attack from Egret uh, from the south of the wall. Um, and part of that might just be Mance being like, fuck it, they're just super weak right now. Maybe we can just brute force our way through. Um, but I, I think I would have taken... I would have tried something else at least before this, try some kind of negotiation tactic or some kind of peacemaking process. But um, granted, a lot of those don't end up going anywhere. So maybe he's just got to roll the dice and use my mammoths. <laughs> I think what you said about trying to negotiate from uh, from a position of strength is right on. That's definitely what Mance says his plan has become to John. Who knows if that was always plan A. The problem is for Mance, the people he ultimately has to negotiate negotiate with aren't the Night's Watch. It's the people on the other side of the wall. It's the the people in Stark territory whose uh, land he would be occupying, or at least who he would be neighbors and potential allies with when it came to the White Walkers. And there's nothing there's nothing John can really do about that. Not only because he has no authority there, but also because the North is just fucked up right now. No one's really in charge at all. Winterfell has been burnt down. The Ironborn are occupying some territory, but not others. Ramsay is kind of running wild. You have other uh, power bases like the Manderleys or, or Barbary Dustin, but no one who can speak credibly to negotiating on everyone's behalf with the Wildlings. So there's no real move to make there. I feel like uh, a lot of uh, Mance going uh, for an attack first, other than just the excitement for for the readers for the readers <laughs> themselves. I think might be in part just because he has to 
show off for his people. Because even though everything we see indicates that Mance is pretty universally beloved, he was a watchman first, and he has to he has to prove that he's really one of them. And he says that's a, that's his whole gambit with the Horn of Winter that he admits to John when they're negotiating. Like I don't actually want to do this because I need the wall to stop the <laughs> others. I need to get on the other side of it and protect my people using the wall. Maybe in an alliance with you if we can work it out. But he still has what he says is the Horn of Winter, and he says that there are plenty among my people who want nothing more than to blow it, get rid of the wall, destroy it. So Mance has to kind of keep his own coalition together, and maybe part of what he's doing is uh, giving people a battle, giving people a chance to exercise their bloodlust, take it to the Watchmen, so it doesn't feel like a surrender. So it doesn't feel like there's there's issues of pride and the wildlings kind of romantic self-conception at, at bay here, even if logically what they're doing is trying to hide uh, what man says. Yeah, I came, I've come South with my tail between my legs to hide behind your wall. That is what they're doing, but maybe Mance just can't acknowledge that and has to find a way of letting off steam first as, as you know, crude as that sounds about the death of many people. I think it's a real military and cultural thing he has to deal with. Yeah, I mean, we talk about the prejudices on the Night's Watch side. A lot of those same prejudices exist on the other side, going the opposite direction towards the Watch. And like you say, I think Mance is more of a linchpin to this coalition than any kind of like ideology or philosophy. So he really need if he shows any sign of faltering or weakness or strength, um, that gives, you know, some of the other people in his camp the opportunity to rebel or push another way or just go... I don't know, berserker mode and not really help the cause in any way. So I do think there is a reason for it. It's just one of those things just, you know, we've reread the story a hundred times and we're always trying to, it's like, if they had just done this, we could have avoided about, you know, 2000 deaths right here. <laughs> and it ends up being Stannis who negotiates somewhat from a position of strength, but he's got his own problems to, to deal with in terms of the Northern Lords, which he ends up kind of dealing with uh, instead of Mance. But that was always going to be the question as to how that that broke down. Uh, you know, George has left hints that the long term prospect might be settling the gift, but no one's in a position to pull that off for the moment. So that is going to wrap us up for our episode on A Storm of Swords, John 8. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating and or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. Helps new listeners find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get early access to our regular episodes, exclusive episodes every month, and more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter, Blue Sky, Instagram, etc. at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky at Quentin. And I'm Manu, and you can find me at Bomb. So, I recently returned to Fever Dream, George R. R. Martin's 1982 vampire novel Fever Dream, that we were covering for our $5 and above patrons here on the Nauticast. I'm returning back to that on a monthly basis to wrap up the book. So, if you haven't already checked out our Patreon, you can head on over there. We have a collection of all the Fever Dream episodes so far that all our $5 and above patrons can catch up on as we uh, go ahead with that. Our Star Wars coverage is returning, jumping into Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. That's going to be out for all of our $5 and above patrons next week. Then we're going to be doing a year-end episode like we did last year where we talked about everything we loved in 2023. That's going to be out for patrons first and then for everyone on uh, New Year's Day. And then after that, kicking off uh, a swap for the new year, we check back in with Arya. Remember Arya Stark? She is, um, even by Arya standards, she's not doing well. She's not doing great, let's just say that much. Uh, what, June was Red Wedding Month? So it's literally been like half a year since we've checked in with Arya. George really stretches that out, and what has Arya been doing in the interim? Not much. Just, nope. Just being being really, really bummed. World historically bummed. And we are going to be bummed with her. Right along with her, exactly. Get ready, everybody. 
So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next time in Westeros in the new year for A Storm of Swords, Arya 12.